pray. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together today, Lord. It's no accident that we're here or listening at home. Clear our minds of anything that would get in the way of worshiping you this morning. May the words of your message resonate in our hearts and our minds. Thank you for your sacred scripture today, Lord. And uh, Lord, we praise you for all the truth that we find in the Bible. Help us to listen to your spirit that we may able to be um, may, able, may be able to apply these, these truths to our life, Lord. Make it about you today, Lord, not us. Sanctify us in your Holy Spirit that we, we may rely on you and you alone, not ourselves, not politicians or any worldly influences, but on you, Lord. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive your words and this message today. God, we just pray that uh, you are made much of this morning and that uh, you give the words for Pastor Duncan today to say, Lord, the truths from your Bible um, that we may understand. Lord, we just pray and thank you for this day and for all that you do for us. Thank you for the safety and health you've given us and any of us who aren't feeling well, God, we pray that you come quickly to, to heal us and to help us get back. Lord, we pray this as our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Well, as you just heard, we're in 1 Samuel today, again, chapter 23. We continue to look at the life of King David. Part of his life is in 1 Samuel. Up to this point in the story, though Saul still reigns over Israel, God has rejected Saul as king because of serial disobedience. And so God has anointed as his new king a shepherd from the tribe of Judah, David, David has killed Goliath and made for himself quite a name as a great warrior. We're now looking at that period in David's life between God calling and anointing him to be king and God actually installing him or commissioning him as king. And that's about a 13, 14 year period. And it's marked by this deadly cat and mouse relationship between Saul and David, King Saul, as Saul is spending tremendous time and energy and resources leading his army in repeated attempts to kill David, who he sees as a threat. Saul is driven, as we've seen earlier, by an evil spirit, and so his actions are perpetually erratic in this particular time. As his pursuit of David continues, Saul collapses. We watch this collapse ever more deeply into spiritual darkness and deception and despair and hopelessness. David, on the other hand, by God's set plan through this time of testing, is learning how to know and how to trust God as he continually looks to Yahweh for direction and empowerment and deliverance. Well, as you heard Scott read from chapter 23, here we find that David is still on the run from Saul and God shows himself to be faithful to protect his new king. God repeatedly foils even Saul's best opportunities to capture and kill David. Because much of what is written in 1 Samuel is written specifically to highlight the contrast between David and Saul. That's the lens we're going to use to look at this chapter. As the author relates the story, two things become very clear. Number one, God is sovereignly orchestrating the events detailed in this chapter. And number two, he is relating to David and to Saul in radically different ways. 
even though David has not yet been installed as Israel's king, God is clearly using him and relating to him in the same manner that he did with the kings of Israel, the way he formerly did with Saul when he was a righteous king of Israel, or at least living as a righteous king of Israel. On the other hand, and much to Saul's frustration, God is using him and relating to him not as the king, though he still is the reigning king. Instead, he's relating to Saul as a foil, as a foil to display his sovereign glory. And we'll see that throughout the text. For the early part of Saul's reign, as we said, he brought glory to God through obedience and conquering God's enemies. But now that God has rejected him, God is using Saul to display his own power and supremacy as he continually frustrates his attempts to kill David. So the first of two major truths in this chapter is God uses David as his king for his people. God uses David as his king for his people. Let's look at four ways that God is using David in a manner that's really consistent with how he used and related to kings of Israel. First, God uses David to express his compassion for his hurting people. In the first five verses, we'll read them again. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Okay, the context is important here. At this time, Saul obviously is hotly in pursuit of David. David and his company, who are, we know, a few hundred cast-off men who have become his army now, they've been staying in the cave of Abdullam, okay? Some unknown person, the text doesn't say who, tells David that the Philistines, and again, the Philistines were the pagan enemies of God, okay? And they had raided the Jewish city of Keilah and were plundering them of their grain. And that was going to bring significant suffering on them. And Keilah was in Judah, which also happened to be David's home tribe. Even though David is on the run from Saul, he inquires of the Lord whether or not he should interrupt his flight from Saul to rescue Keilah from these Philistines. Okay, it's important for us to remember that David has no legal or civil obligation to do this. None, none whatsoever. He has no position in Saul's army and is, in fact, a fugitive. Freeing oppressed Jews from their enemies is ultimately the responsibility of the king. David could have easily heard about this attack and done nothing, saying, well, that's not my job. That doesn't occur to David, obviously. Instead, he goes to God and asks, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The fact that his army wants no part of this fight because they're afraid, that shows us that this was not something that just anybody would feel an inner obligation to do. David feels it because he's a shepherd, and he's a shepherd over these people, and he's concerned about them. God has compassion on the people of Keilah. When David confirms God's command a second time, David and his men go and strike the Philistines with a great blow, okay? 
David also shows God's compassion to his own men here. I think this is comforting. When they initially object to this mission, David, as the preeminent warrior in Israel and their commander, could have just ordered them to follow him. I mean, they were dependent on him for everything in this situation, more so than the armies later on would be, and so he could have easily just ignored their fears. David, however, goes back to get confirmation. Not for him, he knew what was going on. He does this for his men. God knows these men are weak, they've been stretched as they run from the king, they're anxious, they're fearful. So God graciously obliges them in their weakness and their lack of trust by giving this command twice, a second time to David. This godly compassion for God's people expressed by David indicates that David is the one who's acting like the king of Israel here, not Saul. A second way God uses and relates to David as his king is that God is David's commanding general. God is David's commanding general. The way that they waged war, the Jews waged war in the Old Testament is very consistent. When they were waging war correctly, they were holy wars. And that meant that these wars were actually fought between God and his enemies. Okay? So he used his human warriors in Israel to defeat his enemies. Okay? That's a holy war. God had formerly used Saul in this way to defeat his enemies. And when God used an army of his people to fight against his enemies, you might imagine that they always won. And they did. God always won the victory when he's fighting through his people, irrespective of comparative troop strength or any other factor, because it was God who was fighting, not just the people. God was fighting through his people. So here the Philistines are attacking Keilah. Remember, the Philistines are the declared enemies of God. God had earlier ordered Joshua to wipe them off the land of Canaan, they didn't get that done through no fault of God's, and so these pagans who lived near them caused much suffering for the Jews, and they caused suffering for the Jews, frankly, until David later on in his reign finally subdues them. So who does God use to defeat the Philistines? Who does he fight? Who does he use to fight his enemies? Well, he uses David, obviously, and a 600-man army, not Saul and his 3,000-man army. So he uses a person who has far less personnel, but it's David, and that's the point, isn't it? God gives specific instructions to David, and he makes the same promise to David that he makes throughout the Old Testament in times of warfare to his kings and the leaders. In verse 4, this familiar response, I will give the Philistines into your hands. Again, that's typically the kind of promise that God would make to a king not a fugitive. A third way God relates to David as his king is God sends Jonathan to strengthen David. God sends Jonathan to strengthen David. When the good kings of Israel and Judah were in trouble, besieged by an enemy, or they were in some way in peril, God would send them a prophet or a prophetic figure who would come and speak his words of assurance to them. We see this in, for instance, King Hezekiah's life. The Assyrians under Sennacherib, which is a huge army, they just got done knocking off the northern kingdom Israel, and now they're knocking on Judah's door. They're threatening to destroy Judah. They, they have this great dramatic scene where they're saying in front of the people, in their own language, what they're going to do. They're mocking God. And so God sends Isaiah 
to a very scared Hezekiah as they're looking at this hopeless situation and Isaiah from God says, don't worry, God's going to deliver you. And of course, he radically does, doesn't he? God does that here with David, but he uses a very unusual prophetic voice, and that is Saul's son, Jonathan, okay? You'd never write this this way if this is the way you were going to write a story. Notice from verses 16 and 17 how Jonathan encourages David. It says, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Now, we know that this is God speaking through Jonathan to David. Number one, we know because Jonathan actually found David. I mean, do you catch the irony here? The irony is that Saul, with all of his military intelligence and all of his spies and all of those around the countryside who we know were at least in some way loyal to Saul, they couldn't find David. David was out of reach. Jonathan, by God's grace, seems to be able to walk right up to David, okay? That's a God thing. We don't know how that worked out circumstantially, but it was God, okay? We also know that God sent Jonathan because when he spoke to David, it says he strengthened his hand in God. He didn't just say, oh, David, stop worrying. It's going to be okay. No, he strengthened his hand in God, okay? And he does that by reminding David of the promise that God made to him that he would be king. He's saying, my father couldn't possibly kill you because God promised that you were going to be king. And even my father knows that. So it doesn't make sense that you would be afraid that you would be killed. You're going to be king. That's his point. Finally, God uses David as his king over his people because God providentially rescues David from Saul. Near the end of the chapter, we see that for the first time, Saul gets within striking distance of David, and he is moving in for the kill. But who does the Lord cause to prevail? Who does God put his stamp of approval on? And the story, as you heard, obviously tells us it's David. And in God protecting David and his men from his enemy, God is treating him as the rightful king of Israel. He's guarding him. He's looking out for his man, okay? Saul is pursuing David in the wilderness of Maon, and the author writes in verse 26, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Saul's army is doubtless much better equipped than the army of David, and they might have had horses. Whatever the case, it's very clear from the text that as Saul is pursuing David, as Saul has David in his sights, the army is absolutely unable to outrun Saul and his much larger fighting force. The narrator says in verse 26, they were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Okay, so this is what Saul had been waiting for, perhaps for years, okay? He sees David, or at least he sees his men, okay? Some scholars believe the description of the battle that is pictured here is Saul forming something of a pincer's movement with some of his men on one side of David closing in as Saul's men on the opposite side are kind of tightening their grip around 
David. Well, if you do that, the enemy is in a helpless situation, and that's what it appears to be saying. Yet at the moment when victory is almost at hand, God abruptly breaks off the attack. It's important that we see that God providentially rescues David, and that means simply that though God is in complete control here, he's using ordinary circumstances, providence, to accomplish his will. For instance, God's army, or Saul's army, doesn't mysteriously vanish from the scene, okay? There's no parting of the Red Sea type miracle here. This is a rescue that God performed completely through circumstances, and theologians would say this is an example of God's providence, okay? God's work through providence is often even more amazing than overt miracles if you spend a little time and think about what has to happen for this to happen. If God would have supernaturally zapped Saul's army and taken them out, that certainly would have been an impressive miracle. But do you know how many different circumstances, probably thousands of different circumstances, God had to sovereignly orchestrate to get this messenger to Saul at just the right moment so that Saul would break off the attack? Let me just give you the major ones, but underneath every major one, there may be a hundred smaller things that had to happen. First, Saul and his army have to be in just at this place at this precise time, as well as David, okay? Second, the Philistines had to move to attack the Jews at just this time, okay, so that Saul could be diverted. Third, the attack needs to be made known to Saul at just the right time, which means the messenger had to begin his several-mile-long journey at just the right time. You get the idea, right? Those and many other circumstances had to occur in just the right order and at just the right time so that at this precise moment, Saul's army is about to strike the death blow to David and his men. No one will ever convince me that God hasn't got a flair for the dramatic. Okay? It's right here. So let's look at the second part of this story, and that is that God uses Saul as his foil for his glory. Now, there are several ways that the word foil is used. I think there, I looked up there were four ways that that word can be used. But Saul was a foil for God in this sense, in that he uses Saul and his many weaknesses and his many failures as a foil. That is, in order to highlight the differences between Saul and David, and to some extent, Saul and God. Now, before we unpack this, we need to do some clarifying about a couple of statements that Saul makes here, because we could misunderstand them. When Saul was informed of David's arrival at Keilah, he says in verse 7, God has given him into my hand. Okay? Saul again mentions God in verse 21 when he thanks the informants from Ziph for revealing David's whereabouts to him. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Well, here we have this man who is a godless man from everything we know, and yet he's making two references to God here. So how are we to take this? Is this an expression of faith from Saul? And the answer, of course, is no, because there are many other indicators that Saul is not genuinely finding his hope in God. We know also from the previous encounters we've had with Saul that he's not a person who trusts in God. And finally, when Saul says that God has given David into my hand, we know from that testimony that he cannot be sincere. We know he doesn't believe that God had given David into his hand because his son tells us in verse 17, Saul knows that David will one day be king, okay? Later on in the next chapter, Saul says to David, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established 
in your hand. Saul doesn't believe these two contradictory things, that on the one hand, God's going to make David king over Israel, and on the other, he's going to allow him to kill him before that. That doesn't make sense. These are phony expressions of piety from Saul. That's all he can give. It's all too clear from chapter 15 onward that Saul is about Saul. He's not about God. Now let's look at two ways in which God uses Saul as his foil for his glory. The first way is that in contrast to David, Saul uses only fallen, man-centered judgment in his decisions. This is very clear. The author wants us to see this. The author portrays David, he goes out of his way to portray David as someone who doesn't do anything of significance without direct guidance from the Lord, okay? David is hyper-dependent upon God here for everything, okay? Well, when you compare that to the way that the author pictures Saul and his decision-making process, the contrast is stark. In verse 7, Saul says of David, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. You'd think if he said, God has given him in his hand, for God has shut himself. No, it says, for David has done this stupid thing. Saul's confidence is based purely on what he sees and hears. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, and that's not a piece of Saul's decision-making process here. There's no faith at work here. Second, in verses 21 to 23, notice on what Saul is relying when he instructs these traitors from Ziph about David. He says, go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go out with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Again, Saul is not seeking any direction from God here at all to help him find David. His trust is purely in the sure information, which he repeats twice to these people in Ziph. He gives detailed instructions to these Ziphites. Tell me where he is, who has seen him, and where he likes to hide, okay? He's trying to get it all figured out. He's getting all his details. He's crossing off all of his boxes so that he can succeed. His success in finding David is dependent on the comprehensiveness of the investigation of these Ziphites, right? Not in the Lord. Saul believes it's just, if he just has enough accurate information about David's whereabouts, He'll capture him, just as he believed that he's going to capture David because David's in the wrong place. It was all about the circumstances. It had nothing to do with God, okay? A second way God uses Saul as his foil to highlight this contrast with David is he sovereignly causes Saul to experience only failure in his pursuit of David. We've seen this before, but we want to talk about it in more detail now. The second half of verse 13 really gives a great summary of all of Saul's pursuit of David. He says, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Okay, to do something day after day and experience nothing but failure would drive most normal people to conclude that maybe what you're doing is not possible or it's not going to happen. But remember, Saul is driven by an evil spirit. So this is not about being rational. This is about spiritual blindness and deception, and Saul had a whole lot of both of those. The most dramatic example of Saul's as God's 
spoil for David is in this final confrontation in the chapter. Saul, as we said, is so close here. In his mind's eye, he's probably already seeing David's body light up in front of him. But at the last minute, when things seem completely in hand, he himself is forced to call off the hunt. Again, the contrast with David is pretty intense here. David is pictured as a man who is invincible under God. When God is fighting for you, you are invincible, okay? He's always one step or more ahead of Saul, and many times David makes a complete monkey out of Saul, okay? In years of David's flight from Saul, Saul never catches him. Psalm 54 was written by David, and according to the superscription, this is what this psalm was written to. It says, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So that evidently is when this psalm was composed by David, and he concludes the psalm with this great affirmation of faith. He said, for he, God, has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So God uses Saul as his foil to show his power to successfully protect David and to highlight how different Saul is from David. What a man of after God's own heart is versus a man like Saul. Okay. Well, as we close, how are we supposed to apply this? This isn't just an interesting story. What is the Holy Spirit saying to us? Well, Several things probably, but one thing we need to remember, especially at this season of our country, and that is we are invincible until God calls us to himself. We are invincible until God calls him to himself. Do we believe that? Okay. David faces horrific odds, unbeatable odds in his flight from Saul. Saul has better intelligence, he has a much larger army, he has better weaponry, and he has unlimited supplies, okay? Apart from God's regular intervention, it's game over for David. He doesn't stand a chance, as crafty as he was. David and his men were living hand-to-mouth, had few weapons, were always anxious, and they were always on the run. Think about it. Fugitives who run from their pursuers in these situations, they never get away, right? They always get caught. How many 85-year-old Islamic terrorist leaders are there? And the answer is there aren't any. They always die because they don't last that long. They get caught, okay? Prison escapees, okay? People who go in and shoot up schools or other public places, they never get away. Yet David is on the run for over a decade in a relatively small geographic area, and he's never captured. And he has an army of 3,000, at least 3,000 men looking for him. David is a living testament to the truth of what Paul says in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay? If as God, as long as God wants you to be free, then you're going to be free. As long as God wants you to be alive you will live. As long as God wants you safe, you'll be safe. Job 42.2 reminds us no purpose of God's can be thwarted, okay? Now, this truth in no way cancels out the need to exercise good judgment. David is not at all reckless in his fight against Saul. He's doing everything he possibly can to keep from getting captured, and God uses those efforts to keep him safe, okay? 
So this truth about God's sovereignty should never be abused as an excuse for laziness or carelessness. But God is watching over David to protect him and to fulfill his purposes for him. As long as that describes us, we are invincible. Do we believe that? Okay? That should give us great peace when we're feeling threatened in some way. We should take great comfort in God's sovereign protection over us, that he's always asking, acting in our best turn, so that whatever the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. We should take comfort from those kind of truths when we're tempted to be anxious about our safety or our security, whether it's the possibility of an election outcome we don't like, or whether it's COVID-19. There's just no place for fear in the life of a believer in those kind of things. If God is for us, can COVID-19 be against us? If God is for us, can the person from the wrong political party be against us, okay? We need to remember that because it's easy to be afraid. I see way too many Christians that are afraid. Second application we see is we have to see Christ in David here. There are many ways that this story of David points to Jesus or the son of David, Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at four of them. First, like David, Jesus acted more like a leader of his people than the official Jewish religious leaders, right? While David was healing the sick and teaching kingdom truths and training up leaders and feeding the poor and tending to the broken among the Jews, those who were supposed to be shepherding Israel were extorting widows and raising, the, raising or seeking the praise of man, heartlessly applying the law to people needing compassion. And just as Saul resented David and sought to kill him, we know the Jewish religious leaders likewise resented Jesus and sought to kill him. Okay? The second way David points to Jesus is like David, Jesus knew of his opposition's passion to kill him. Okay? They both knew what was going on here. Whether through prophet or the ephod or his spies, David managed to stay one step ahead of Saul and his men. And likewise, Jesus was constantly aware of what the enemies were doing, and he too stayed free because it was not his time. Okay? That is, until the precise moment in time arrived for him to be captured, a moment that had been chosen by him eons before his enemies were born. Third, like David, Jesus was sold out by his own people. We're well aware of the betrayal of Judas, but it's important for us to know that David experienced a similar betrayal here. Verse 19 says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? in the strongholds of Horish, on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. It's important for us to know that the Ziphites were from the tribe of Judah. First Chronicles chapter 2 tells us that the Ziphites were descended from Caleb, which means the Ziphites were David's kinsmen. Okay? Yet the author reveals that these Ziphites, these Ziphites to be people who were not only willing, these people are downright anxious to completely sell David out. Like Judas, they were doubtless wanting some sort of remuneration or favor from Saul in exchange for their betrayal. Like Jesus, David has his own people betray him for whatever they could gain by that. Fourth, 
Like David, God had sent a messenger to Jesus in his hour of need to strengthen him. Jonathan came to David when he was scared and anxious and was strengthened in God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God sent to Jesus a messenger of another kind, the angelic kind. Luke 24, 22, 43 tells us, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Jonathan is David's angel here. There are those kind of connections. There's a reason why they call him the son of David. It's not just the fact that he's fulfilling David's line. It's because David in many ways points to Jesus. Uh, there is, of course, one eternally important difference between Jesus and David, and that is God delivered David out of every trouble. He never gave David into Saul's hand, or frankly, anyone who sought to do him harm. He had several close calls, but he was never captured. That's, of course, not the way that God dealt with the son of David, his own son. In fact, God eventually did deliver Jesus over to his captors in spite of earnest pleas from Jesus. He chose not to rescue his son from the Jewish religious leaders who, after years of frustration, finally did capture their elusive prey. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, there was no providentially timed messenger who came to call the Roman guards away. God chose not to deliver him from the cowardly Pontius Pilate or the blasphemous Roman guards or the crucifixion detail who nailed him to a cross. The story ended very differently for the son of David because the son of David was not battling to save himself. He was fighting to save others. He came to defeat sin and death and Satan, and they are far more potent enemies than the Philistines. And in order for Jesus to defeat those most intimidating of enemies, he needed to die on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus did not only not deliver Jesus from his enemies, God did not only not deliver Jesus from his enemies, the Father actually became the enemy of the Son. He did this when Jesus took the sin of his people on him, and God in his holy wrath punished their sins on Jesus. When David cried out in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hadn't really forsaken him. He was still there. But when Jesus quoted that verse from David on the cross, God had in fact forsaken him. He wasn't there. For the first time in all eternity, he turned away. As believers, every day we need to preach that good news to us, that God was willing to do this, to die for my sins. We should be strengthened in God through the gospel. If you've not received Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, and your treasure, you need to do that today. He died on a cross. He suffered betrayal and death so that sinners like us would not have to suffer eternally for our sins. He paid the penalty for sins so that he could wash them all away. All you need to do is, by faith, receive him and his death as the payment for your sins. Walk away from your life of sin and receive his forgiveness that he purchased at the cross. May God give us the grace to look to the son of David and be strengthened in God for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for what you did with David, and we're even more grateful for what you did 
with the Son of David for us. Father, help us always when we read the Old Testament to be looking for Jesus. I know that was said last week. Father, it's worth repeating. And Father, we pray that as we see Jesus in the pages of Scripture, as we see his glory, we would be transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit more and more into his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you're trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord, we invite you to join us in the Lord's Supper and be strengthened in God through this time. As we said, we're all going to be coming up in just a moment together. We're not going to pass it out so as to avoid contact a bit, and so we'll be doing it that way. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you eat this bread, remember me. In the same manner, after dinner, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Father, I just pray that as we come up and take these elements that you would enable us to see Jesus, as that we would enable, be enabled to see Jesus Christ crucified and the love that you have for us and the holiness that you showed in that by punishing sin. Father, help us to reflect on these things. God, as we physically internalize these elements, help us to spiritually internalize the good news of the gospel. Strengthen us in God now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to come up when you'd like, and we'll partake together. mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me your blood has washed away my sin jesus thank you the father's wrath completely satisfied jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table jesus Jesus said, I am the bread of life.
The Apostle Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's continue to worship the Lord. You can stand and sing with us. people said 